questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. We've all asked ourselves the question, it's impossible to look up at the stars and not think about it. Are we alone in the universe? Books, movies, and television shows proliferate that attempt to answer this question and explore it. Tonight's guest treats that question as merely the beginning, touching off a wild ride of exploration in the final frontier. He considers, for instance, the myriad of questions that would arise once we do discover life beyond Earth, an eventuality which top NASA officials told Wall is only drawing closer. What would the first aliens we meet look like? Would they be little green men or mere microbes? Would they be found on a planet in our own solar system or orbiting a star far, far away? Would they intend to harm us? And if so, how might they do it? How might they already have visited? We discuss the insights of some of the leading lights in space exploration today and how the next space age might be brighter than ever. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Tonight's special guest is Dr. Michael Wall, a senior writer at Space.com, who has written extensively about the search for alien life. His work also has appeared in Scientific American, NBC News, Fox News, and a number of other outlets. He holds a graduate certificate in science journalism from the University of California, Santa Cruz, before becoming a writer, Dr. Wall worked as a biologist. He earned a PhD in biology from the University of Sydney in Australia and has 15 peer-reviewed publications. He's based in San Francisco, where he also chronicles the space tech revolution in Silicon Valley. And directly from San Francisco, I would like to welcome Dr. Michael Wall. Hello, Dr. Wall, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Good. I'm good. Thank you for, for inviting me on. It should be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. And by the way, your new book is titled, I forgot to mention that, Out There, A Scientific Guide to Alien Life, Antimatter, and Human Space Travel for the Cosmically Curious. First of all, why the book? Why did you write this book? Well, yeah, I just thought that this is, this is a topic that, that, you know, everybody cares about. Anybody who 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 kind of thinks deeply about our our sort of place in the universe and and like what it all means. This is a question everybody considers. And we're we're really at the point now in space science and, and space flight where we can like actually tackle this this question. And it's it's sort of come out of the the like sort of fringes of the scientific landscape and into the mainstream. You know, I mean 
like there used to be a little bit of, of a taboo among biologists and, and among planetary sciences to, to actually go after the whole alien life question. But that's not the case anymore. You know, this is a serious kind of field of, of scientific inquiry. And that's that's all. I mean, this this has all been kind of taking shape over the past 10 years or so as uh, yeah, like as we've learned how many habitable planets are out there in the universe and, and that our own solar system has, has actually multiple habitable worlds that that, that could host life today. Um, so, yeah, and this is it's it's just sort of all those things coming together is like. Wow, this this is something. I mean, we like we may actually get get some answers to this huge, huge question in the relatively near future. I had this. What you just said is something that fascinates me lately, because I've interviewed several professors in the past. I would say last three months, and I have to ask you this, which I wanted to ask you later, but I'll ask you now. Why do you think the topic of UFOs, at least from my perspective, is no longer viewed with ridicule. You know, years ago, many of the serious researchers I've interviewed would go to the mainstream media and, and, you know, they would put the X-Files music. They were made fun of. The interviewers would joke. But that doesn't seem to be the case anymore in 2019. What changed, in your opinion? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree with with that observation. I mean, I think that 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 same sort of revolution in thought about well there's so many habitable planets out there now i mean there's about 200 billion stars in our galaxy and we've just learned over the past 10 years or so that that about a quarter of them probably have like a relatively earth-like planet and so you know that's like 50 billion potentially habitable worlds out there And and like those are just the planets you know not even necessarily moons and we like learned from our own solar system that like you you could conceivably get get a moon that 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 has like a subsurface ocean that that could support Earth-like life. You know, there are actually multiple moons in our own solar system like that. And so th- this is all kind of added. That this is kind of built up momentum in the public consciousness. I think just seeing these stories over and over again about, well, like we found another potentially habitable planet. And it's not that far away. And it's like, and and then there are all these studies about you know Mars had oceans and Mars had had habitable lakes and streams. And I mean Venus may have been habitable. Just this kind of trickle of stories about. Well, it's not it's not crazy to actually think that there could be alien life out there just because we're just learning that there's so much opportunity for that to have occurred elsewhere. And so I just think that that has sort of built up in the public mind over the past decade or so. And it's just given people reason to, to actually consider these things quite seriously and not just be like, oh, that's ridiculous. Oh, that's stupid. And that's that's kind of percolated over into the whole UFO thing, too. I mean, I think it's part of the same phenomenon. By the way, may I call you Mike? Sure, yeah. Thank you. Well, let's go back to August 15th, 1977, the wow signal. Was it a wired, isolated natural event, or was it a terrestrial interference somehow masquerading as a deep space signal? Tell us more about the wow signal and why is it so significant? Yeah, it's it's like it's one of the kind of deepest mysteries in in the whole alien life hunt, and it's probably something that that we're that we'll never know the answer to. I mean, but yeah, yeah. Back in 1977, um, this, um, yeah, like this big, yeah, big radio telescope, but that that was in Ohio, actually. Like, I mean, it picked up something that was an intriguing signal, and it seemed to be coming from deep space. And people didn't. I mean, there was no real explanation for exactly what it was. It was it was in the like the right range of kind of the electromagnetic spectrum where where we might like expect to hear something from an alien civilization. It's, it's, it's like a range of, of that spectrum that, that we might expect them to actually use if they're communicating. 
but yeah, I mean, we only heard it once and, um, and, and over the years people have, have looked in the direction from, from which it apparently came and tried to find it again, but it's just never recurred. And so it's, it's like, it's one of those things. No, it's not, I mean, it's not definitive. I mean, I'm not sitting here claiming that it was a, a sign from an alien civilization, but it's possible. And I mean, yeah, most astronomers would say it's, it was, it was probably terrestrial interference of some sort. Or um, that's that's the most likely explanation, but but the fact is we we just don't know, and we'll probably never know because I mean if it never occurs, then we then we never get a chance to actually follow up on it and, and do any more investigation, and that's sort of that's the frustrating thing about this field um, is that it's very possible to sort of get get a one off signal like that and then you never get it again, and so you can kind of speculate about it for for the next forty five fifty years, and I mean we'll never really really know. You mentioned Mars and Venus maybe having similar landscapes to Earth maybe thousands, if not millions of years ago. Then we have the asteroid belt. Do you think that the reason why, at least Mars, is the way it is today is something that happened that caused perhaps another planet to blow up? And that's what we see now as the asteroid belt and therefore caused havoc in what we see as Mars today. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think that like the asteroids are, are probably not shards of a blown up planet, but just sort of pieces of the planets that like never came, they never actually coalesced into planets, so, like sort of like leftover pieces from the early solar system. Mars's transformation was extreme. You know, Mars did have like a big ocean and it, and yeah, yeah, about three and a half billion years ago, that had all changed. And that, that was probably because Mars is, is, yeah, is a lot smaller than you know, than the earth is, it's only got about 11% of the earth's mass. So like when it formed, it initially had this, this, this you know, very powerful global, um, magnetic field, which actually would, would protect its, its atmosphere from solar radiation and, and other things which would work to actually strip its atmosphere away. So, so it was, it was protected by that magnetic field for, for a while. And so it was able to actually hang on to a thick atmosphere, which in turn kept it warm enough to, to keep liquid water on its surface and so on. But then three and a half billion years ago, or about four billion years ago is when it all started, that, that global magnetic field was lost. And then like all the solar charged particles that are streaming from the sun were free to start stripping away at the atmosphere. And it was lost to space by about three and a half billion years ago. And that's really why Mars, why Mars transformed, you know, I mean, it lost all of its air, almost all of its air. It still has a thin atmosphere today, but it just, and it, and it got cold and, and, and it got dry. And that's probably the, that's, that's what scientists think is, is the main thing that, that changed Mars from kind of like a relatively Earth-like world a long time ago to the cold, dry planet that, that it is today. But Mars isn't, I mean, Mars's surface is very different, but, but Mars still has subsurface aquifers. So, um, so if, if the Mars ever did host life, which is a very distinct possibility, it, it very well could still exist down, down in, like in that groundwater. I mean, not like not sure how kind of deep you would have to go, but um, it's 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 very possible that 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 there is still life down there somewhere. Just that question that came to mind. I wanted to ask you. Let me just ask you this before we move on, and then I'll ask you what it just came to mind about the rovers. Uh, it's been forty-two years since the Wow signal. Uh, have we determined what it really was, or have any further conclusions been reached at all? No, I mean 
yeah, it's one of those things where where if you ask most astronomers, they will they'll they'll say it was like most likely like some sort of like terrestrial interference or or something from a satellite, and that's that's like the most kind of reasonable explanation. But there are some people out there who who still think I mean it's it's a viable candidate for an extraterrestrial like sort of signal. You know, one of the people who who first discovered it, he still thinks that it's that it could very well be like some sort of extraterrestrial signal. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean nobody really knows. There's there's no firm consensus, but I mean most scientists would say it's probably interference of some sort. But yeah, I mean nobody like knows for for like certain what it is. I wanted to ask you about the rovers. They were supposed or they were planned for 90-day missions an opportunity worked nearly what 15 years and then we yeah. have the other one that I believe is still active, correct? Well, um, yeah, there were those, those like two that, that, that actually landed in, in um, January 2004, Spirit and then also Opportunity. Right. They, they, right. They're both gone. Spirit died in 2011 and like an Opportunity just died last year. But yeah, I mean, both of them were, they were only supposed to row for about 90 Earth days and they, they both went for years and years, which, yeah, which was amazing. Curiosity Rover, which which is kind of NASA that that's the one that, that actually landed in 2012 and has, has made us all sorts of cool discoveries about how there, there was an ancient lake in, in the site that is exploring on this, this like big crater floor that it's, that it's been exploring for, for seven years now. I mean, it's found that there, there was like a lake and stream system there that actually lasted for a long, long time. So that, that one's still going. Curiosity is about the size of a car. Um, it's, it's still going and it's still in pretty good health. Um, but yeah, yeah, spirit and opportunity are both gone. There are ma Mars dust storms every so often, correct? Yeah, yeah, that and that that's actually what killed opportunity. Um, because it was a solar powered rover, and so yeah, so it needed relatively clear skies and clear solar panels to be able to absorb enough light to to survive. And that huge dust storm cropped up last June, um, and it, it covered the entire planet. And, um, yeah, it just, it, it, it probably coated opportunity with, with tons of dust and there was so much dust in the air for so long that it just, yeah, it just couldn't, couldn't get enough solar energy to keep its, its sort of heating batteries going. And it just, it, it probably essentially froze to death. What about curiosity with these storms that happen every so often? I mean, this have to be a storm, but there's dust in the air. So on. how are those cameras so crystal clear all the time? How do yeah. they clean themselves? Yeah, that's it's it's one of those things. Curi yeah, the actually Curiosity doesn't have to actually worry about dust so much because it's it's powered by. I mean, it's not solar powered. Nuclear battery is 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 what powers Curiosity. Um, so it it can just kind of sit those dust storms out. You know, it's um, but yeah, I mean, it it, it does get some some sort of dust on its cameras and and stuff sometimes. But um, but there are also there there are winds on like Mars, you know, and some of these dust storms that like blow through, you know, they'll like deposit some some dust on 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 the rover and on its cameras and stuff but then another breeze will come through and and, and sort of blow it off so it's it's just one of those things where it's like a cycle you know i mean sometimes you get dusty and sometimes like a different breeze picks up and, and kind of blows the dust off of you when you said nuclear powered is it plutonium that it has yeah yeah actually and yeah it's 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 a specific type that um where, where it takes like the radioactive decay of that plutonium and there, there's a lot of heat that that 
that comes from that radioactive decay. And this this particular type of, of like nuclear battery, it basically converts that that heat into electricity, which which the rover uses for its various for its science instruments and to keep itself warm and so on and so forth. I remember in the early 2000s, if I'm not mistaken, NASA launched a, a probe. I forgot where it was going, but I do remember the fact that it carried 20 pounds of plutonium. And I thought, I know that the the uh, space shuttles had an abort uh, button at any time. NASA could actually press a button and if <laughs> they could explode so that it's not affecting, you know, the, the cities and so on. But 20 pounds of plutonium, what kind of a warning mechanism or, or precaution, precautionary mechanism does NASA have if something fails and they have to abort it and if it's going above a city? Yeah, that, that's, that's a very good question. NASA has, has obviously thought about that, and they, they take great care to actually make, make sure that they, these things are safe, even in like the, the worst-case scenario. They're, they're actually like encased in, in, in like a very thick, like sort of safe-like material, mm -hmm. basically, and they actually launch. So, so even in the worst-case scenario, if, if there's a launch failure and this, and this like spacecraft comes crashing back to Earth and explodes – they like they've designed this this safe that's that's around this 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 like nuclear fuel basically it's it's like been designed to endure even like the worst kind of explosions even the worst crashes that this thing could theoretically have coming back to earth so yeah it's not it's 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 still pretty safe nasa takes all that stuff into consideration good to hear mike there's uh, this renewed interest in going back to the moon as you know but mostly yeah. mars but shouldn't we focus on having a permanent base on the moon before we even talk about colonizing Mars? Yeah, this is a big debate, right? I mean, there, there, like, there are lots of different opinions about this, and it just sort of depends what, what your priorities are. It, it certainly makes sense to, to actually want to go back to the moon um, and sort of work out all of the technologies that we need, all, all the skills that we're going to need to actually live off of Earth for a long period of time, because this is really hard, and we've actually never done it. You know, I mean, you send people up to the space station, and they, and they stay for six months or so, and then they come back down. But that's really different than actually going to another world and trying to actually live on there for a long time. You know, um, at, yeah, I mean, you go to Mars, it's like a six-month, at, at the very minimum, trip and that's that's just one way so if so if something happens on on the way to mars then you're in serious trouble you can't just come home and get get help um so that's that's the kind of mindset of of the group of folks who like want us to go to the moon first and set up a base there and get all of our kind of ducks in a row technologically so that we're kind of prepared for the mars missions but then like on the other side you have people saying well wait um we don't have an infinite amount of time and, and like a lot of money or, and we can't assume that the political will is, is always going to be strong to kind of fund Mars missions. So we should kind of strike while the iron's hot and just, just go to Mars. And, you know, I mean, we used to, to like be willing to take risks. I mean, you saw that back in the Apollo days, they, we were not really all that prepared to actually go to the moon, but, but we still went anyway. Um, we were like, there are risks, but we we're going to assume those risks and it's, it's that's just like the nature of exploration we should just go so there there is one camp of people who think we should just go straight to mars put put people straight on mars just because you know they like view the moon as um as as like a detour it'll it'll take up a lot of time and money and could push back the whole kind of boots on mars thing by a generation or more 
And I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of sympathetic to both sides. I, I can see both, like both angles. I'm kind of, I mean, I, I'm kind of impatient. Like I want to see big, big discoveries made while I'm like still alive and still, still actually capable of, of like. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it because you don't want to believe. You want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.